Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we're in the middle of the series, I said, called Death for Life. And we've had uh, a few weeks where we've looked at Jesus being our revelation. We're looking at how the cross of Jesus doesn't just bring forgiveness. It does. Hallelujah. But there's so much beauty and depth in that, in very nitty-gritty, detailed ways. We looked at how Jesus is our example. Last week, I looked at how Jesus is our cleanser. So if you've got your notebooks and you're making notes, um, hopefully you're up to date with those. And we're working out at how it impacts us. And we've been doing it by looking at real-life pastoral letters in real-life situations written. And uh, before I dive in today and tell you the story, the real-life story, I just want you to think for a moment of the most significant wrong that has been done to you. So for some of you, that's immediately painful, and I, I, I don't want to cause unnecessary pain. And for some of us, we think, oh, have I had that? Just think of the greatest injustice you felt, maybe, or that has been done to you by someone. An injustice. Or a situation maybe you know of if you've been blessed and that hasn't been a significant thing in your life, although I suspect all of us have something of that in life. And then I want you to think how you feel, so be attentive to how you feel when someone says to you, forgive them. Think of the greatest injustice done to you, and then when someone says to you, forgive them, (laughs) what is your immediate um, reaction or response to that? If you've been a Christian for a while, you know that we should. Having received mercy, we're obliged to forgive. Having received much, we want to give the Lord's Prayer. Brings forgiveness to the center. Forgive us as we forgive those. There's some conditional element in that. It's something of a mystery. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. There's lots of context around that, but it doesn't prevent the impact and the provocation that it brings. How do you feel when someone says you should forgive them? It's a very easy thing to say, and yes, it's ultimately right. But, but at the core of that question is how do we reconcile forgiveness and injustice? <laughs> How, how do we, when someone's done something so wrong to us, how do we reconcile? How does forgiveness actually deal with the injustice? Or is it just a looking over it? In your situation, how does that work out? And coming to today's story, today's story is about Bill. Can you say Bill? So I'll just read you his story. And then we'll use that as a means to look how the gospel can come into such situations. Bill With a beautiful wife, cute kids, a solid career, and a fruitful ministry, Bill seemed to be living the idyllic life. As we ate chicken wings, which is the pastor writing term, so if you want to meet together and eat chicken wings, I'll be up for that. Um, I inquired about his upbringing, expecting to hear that he was raised by godly parents who were responsible for much of his success. He spoke lovingly of his mom and siblings, but said nothing of his father. Curiously, I asked him about his dad, at which point his countenance changed and he said, My dad's a Christian. That was it. I was rather obvious. I was rather intrigued. It was obvious that there was more to the story. So I continued probing and asked him to tell me about his dad. Bill explained that his grandfather was a mean drunk who routinely beat his wife and kids, including his father when he was a young boy. <coughs> Apparently, Grandpa was so violent that he put his kids in hospital on more than one occasion. 
When he came home drunk, the kids would run for their lives, seeking a place to hide in the woods near their home. As a result, the kids spent many nights sleeping in various hiding places outside, hoping their dad would not find them and beat them yet again. Growing up with constant violence deeply affected Bill's father, who continued much of the abusive behavior. As a result, Bill grew up routinely watching his mother being dragged around the house by her hair. If any of the kids tried to intervene, they were also screamed at and slapped in the face, punched, thrown to the ground, and sometimes kicked while they lay on the floor, even the girls. This abuse continued for many years, and Bill grew increasingly tough with a strong sense of duty and justice. He channeled the bitterness he had for his father towards perceived good and was an overachiever in school, sports, work, religion, and anything else that he committed himself to. Outwardly, he was a very self-sufficient and good young man. Inwardly, he was filled with rage and bitterness towards his dad. Later in college, Bill's whole life changed when Jesus saved him. For the first time, he felt, <laughs> sorry, some stories are closer to home, not necessarily mine. For the first time, he felt the father whole in his heart, being filled with the love of God. And he deeply desired to learn the Bible and honor God, the honorable father. God led Bill to a great church where the pastor, a very masculine and godly man, became the earthly father figure he longed for in many ways. The mentoring of the pastor was one of the most healing events in Bill's life and gave him a vision for how to become a loving, protective Christian husband and father. In the ensuing years, Bill married a lovely Christian woman with whom he had great kids. He was proud that the cycle of violence that had destroyed generations of his family ended with him. He never raised a fist against his wife or children, However, he conveniently overlooked the fact that while he did not hit his wife with his fists, he did abuse his wife with his words. His anger would erupt much like his father's because in part he had not forgiven his father for being an unjust and violent man and a root of bitterness had remained in his soul. Then one day God also saved Bill's father. Bill was skeptical at first but over time was convinced that his dad had indeed met Jesus his father demonstrated with a life of repentance as a new man who, though not perfect, was not the mean, violent man that Bill had known growing up. On the one hand, Bill was truly glad to see his father meet Jesus and be transformed. On the other hand, Bill still felt unsure of how to respond. His friends told him to just forgive his dad and move on. To Bill, though, that answer seemed trite. Just forgive and move on. To Bill, simply erasing the past as if nothing had happened... And moving on because his dad got saved seemed to ignore the injustice. So quite a, quite a weighty, deep story. Now some of us in this room will have something of that story. Many of us may not. And that's a great privilege. But we will all have some stories of hurt or pain. Just as an aside, if that is something of your story and you think you can't share it, uh, you can. All right? There's, uh, we have, we, in our church we try to be very real and it's necessary. You don't have to hide anything. No matter where you fall in such stories, okay? There's no veneer needed in church. You don't clean yourself up to come in. Otherwise, we're just pretending and playing games. Okay? Be wise in how you share your story. But please feel free that you can share your story as we wrestle with how life in Jesus helps us and changes us. But the key question is, how does the gospel, how does the good news... 
the good news of Jesus dying on the cross, rising to life, raising to life again, how that good news affects Bill in this very real situation when his friends say, forgive him, and he thinks that's trite, but his father is clearly saved. How does the gospel deal with this great sense of injustice? How does it deal for you when your enemy or your perpetrator gets saved and you have to call them brother or sister? You might not be best friends, but in Christ, you're your brother and, and sister. How does the gospel speak into that? Well, today we're looking at the beautiful, wonderful, slightly confusing truth that Jesus is my wrath bearer. Can you say wrath bearer? How is that good news when you speak about wrath? And the biblical word for that is propitiation. Can you say propitiation? Propitiation is the averting of God's wrath. By the offering of a gift in its place. And we're going to look at two key things today. We're going to look at the fact that God is a God of righteous wrath. Can you say righteous wrath? And scandalous love. We think it should be the other way around in our modern western world, don't we? We think it should be scandalous wrath. Surely God of anger, we've moved on from that. We're not primitive anymore. And it should be a God of righteous love. I mean, he is a God of righteous love. Hallelujah. And when I use the word scandalous, what I don't mean is that it's, it's wrong or it's, it's, it's just incorrect or something. Because there's two ways to use scandalous, isn't it? One is to say, oh, something's gone wrong. Some law's been broken or something. And, and the fact that it's happened is scandalous. The other is to think, it's so undeserved. It's ridiculous. It's scandalous. So we're going to look at these two things. The righteous wrath of God and the fact of his scandalous love. And I use those words very deliberately. And I want to show you today that the wrath of God... The anger of God makes the love of God richer, deeper, sweeter. And if I might, I think looking at the righteous wrath of God shows the truth of the love of God. I'm not sure you can be truly loving when you don't get righteously angry. When that thing is threatened. So you often hear... Christians tell stories, don't you? And some people just seem to get overwhelmed and struggle to hold back the tears sometimes. And we all think, me included, there they go again. Emotional, insert name. Every time they talk about what Jesus has done for them, they just break down in tears. And I, 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 I think sometimes our lack of encounter, our joy and our liberty is that we underestimate and we don't fully grasp what we have been saved from. And people who get saved later in life and have lived life with wreckage and mess and hurt and pain or just not knowing God, when they get saved, it's what they save from. Many in this room have the privilege of growing up, spending most of our lives in a Christian family or Christian setting. And I think we need to work hard at realizing what we've been saved from. Because we've been rejoicing, rightly so, in the wonderful love of God most of our lives. But to really grasp what God saved us from, some of you live with it. <laughs> Man, you have no idea. If you knew my story, why wow, God saved me from that. You hear Christians say, I've been saved. Well, what from? <laughs> You know, when, when you use language, say, I've been born again, I've been saved. Well, what from? Well, from my sin, true. But do you know what that really means? To have been saved from that. So let's dive into these two things. The, the, uh, these are not popular things, especially the, the righteous wrath of God. I understand that. And uh, I will not do it full justice today. And there will probably be lots of follow-up questions. And I hope you do that. When you write, read stuff in the Bible, you think, oh. I hope you ask questions. Of that, and just think, don't just skip over it. It's okay to ask those questions. 
So Bill felt anger. His dad had failed him. Another story is he came home with straight A's and his dad said, uh, you'll end up in prison and I'll one day need to bail you out. So just emotionally and physically, in every way, he had been abused. Bill's anger, was it appropriate? His anger, his, his wrath towards what was going on, well, of course it is, but we can often think for Christians, anger is wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's quite hard in church because we talk about love and compassion and kindness, and we must not sin in our anger, but in that sometimes we lose righteous anger at wrong in the world, at wrong around us. It is okay to be angry in the right way. problem is most of the time we get angry at our football team losing. Uh, we get angry at the Netflix series ending and they're not renewing it. It's a joke, but we get really irritated, don't we? We, we get angry when we get overlooked. Like, I mean, what makes you most angry? Well, you know, what, what really kind of angers you? And you're like, you're probably a good Christian, so you, you deal with it quickly, but inside it's all, you know, when I, it might be, who knows, a myriad of things for us, getting overlooked, someone else getting promoted, whatever it is, but righteous anger is righteous. There is an anger we should feel at injustice. I mean, you just have to read the news to fuel your righteous anger sometimes. Although even within that, <laughs> so mixed up in us. God gets angry. Did you know that? Bill's, appro- Bill's feelings appropriately mirrored the sense of justice that God feels. God gets angry. He grieves over sin. Right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, We read this, when sins first entered the world, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's not a geographic question. This is God (laughs) we're talking about. He's not like, I can't find you, Adam and Eve. Where are you? I mean, I made the whole cosmos, but I can't find you. It's not a geographic question. That's a grieving question. We used to walk in the garden together before sin entered, and we were in perfect union. Which is what God's purpose is for you. To walk in perfect union with God. Total liberty and freedom. As if you're strolling through a garden. So he said, where are you? Because they've hidden themselves. Sin has broken and marred that relationship. It's a, it's a grieving question amongst many others. It's clearly not a geographic question. God knows. Where are you? And then you get to Genesis chapter 6. And this is early on in the Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. God was grieved because of all the rampant evil and sin in the world. To the point where scripture tells us he was grieved that he had made man. You think, well, I can just pass over those. You think... The Bible uses various pictures, analogies of our relationship with God. One is that God is married to his people. And when it speaks about sin in the Bible, it speaks about adultery. It speaks of whoring around. It's like like coming home, a husband coming home and his wife is in bed openly with someone else. And said, no, I don't want you husband, I want this new husband. That's that's what sin is. It's, It's when we reject God, slam him in the face and choose something else ahead of him. When he has been a faithful, loving, generous, kind husband. I think that's, and and the other way around. The Bible speaks of our relationship with God as a a father with children. Imagine walking home. You come in your home and you've provided everything for your kids. You walk in the door and there's another guy there. And they say, hey, we don't want you to be our dad anymore. We want this person to be. That's what sin's like. Sin's like, we want this now. And whether we do it intentionally or whether it's 
just a bit more subtle and we're confused. That's, the Bible speaks pretty grittily about what sin is. And we rightly focus on grace and rejoicing and what God's freed us from. And we must, thus, I think we speak about more of that than anything and honor Jesus. But we've got to know where, why that's amazing. Because of where we have come from. God is filled with grief and anger. He's not indifferent to sin. It's not just a, a legal thing on a piece of paper. You've sinned. It's a personal. When you sin, no matter what that sin is, you're first sinning against God. So if, 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 if you sin against me, you have sinned against me. But you've first sinned against God. Made in his creation, his purpose, the evil in the heart. It all comes out of our heart. We can never blame anyone else for our actions of sin. Never. Because they come from our heart. They might provide the circumstances that reveal it, but we are always responsible for our sin. Not because they did that. As hard as that sounds, it comes from within. God is grieved and angered. Exodus chapter 4 verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You think, Moses, the anger of the Lord. Numbers 11.1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Psalm seventy-eight thirty-one: the anger of God rose against them. I think we don't think about these things, do we, too often? And I understand, and I don't think they should be initially the major, but the Bible, you've got the, 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 the righteous wrath and anger of God mountain, and you've got the love of God mountain. As a friend of mine says, we often read scripture with uh, the anger filters and the love glosses. And I, you know, I, I understand why we focus more on the love of God, what He's done for us, because, and I, and I think that's right. But we must feel the weight of these things. And now our anger is a mix of right and wrong, as I've said. But God's anger is pure, slowly aroused, often delayed and deferred. Exodus thirty-four six to eight: The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious." slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, in Bill's story, his father just won't be cleared, as if nothing ever happened. Isaiah 48, 9, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. See, God is love, but he does feel anger. It's a righteous anger. Now, some of you be thinking, and this is the key, Hugh, that's all the Old Testament, yeah? Anyone want to, like, oh, that's all Old Testament verses. God's an angry God in the Old Testament. Who thought that? You don't have to own up. It's very easy to think that, isn't it? You know, I think primitive moved on. Isn't the Old Testament angry God, the New Testament? Well, no, God doesn't change. <laughs> well, he's not really God, is he? So in the New Testament, one example, Mark 3, verse 5, Jesus looked around at them with anger. Grieved at the hardness of heart. I mean, that's not top of the list of what I think would anger God. He angered at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. In the midst of that, God shows mercy. But he's still angry. We forget that he comes into the temple, the house of God, and it's being used for wrong purposes, nefarious purposes. And he throws over the table, righteously angry that the house of God has been marred from what it should be. When he's... Dealing with the leaders of the Pharisees who are full of self-righteousness and proud. He calls them sons of the devil. It's not going to go down well, is it, on an Instagram reel. Sons of the devil. That's you're like, oh gosh, you think. Acts chapter 5, this is sobering. Ananias and Sapphira, the church have a 
equivalent of an offering. They Ananias and Sapphira sell a field, but they make, get in cahoots and they say, we're going to say we sold it for this amount, so it looks like we've given all our money. So they go and they give their offering, and they kind of, it seems that they make out that they've given everything that they made. Um, but God knows that they're lying, and they just both get struck down dead there and then for lying to God. So we can take up an offering next week. No, no, just, no. no we won't. And the issue is not the money there. The issue is the deliberate deception before God. Do you know, it says of the early church that people feared joining them. But they joined them. Well, the, because God was there. But there was an awe and a reverence to the wonderful might of God. The reason God gets angry is because he hates sin. It destroys, it suffocates, it dishonors. You've probably heard this phrase, and I'm not going to go too deeply into it. God hates sin but loves the sinner. Ever heard that phrase? It's not a biblical phrase. I think Gandhi came up with it, actually. Now, I, I, as someone says, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's misleading, or it's a half-truth. Of course God loves the sinner. Hallelujah. And God hates sin. But if you read what God hates in the Bible, and sin comes within us, I don't think you can separate the two. Only God is able to hate. And there's two ways of hating, isn't there? Hate is intent on destruction, and hate is the loathing of something that's an affront to you. Isn't it? So I love my wife. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Episode, okay. I love my wife. But there are moments I can feel, oh, I hate what you're doing. Usually it's wrong because 99% of I hate what you're doing to me. <laughs> I, I feel, but it's not, I don't hate her, but I'm, I'm hating what's going on. There's a loathing of what's broken in there. And I don't want to go into this too much, but I don't think that phrase is a biblical phrase by itself. Both are true. But there's so much more to say on that. But we desire to move on quickly and only speak about God's love, don't we? Man, I want to. (laughs) I don't don't want to preach point one. Well, I do, because I love you. And there's no reason you need to worry about it because you're hearing what I'm saying today. Hallelujah. But I think we should let us, in our comfortable Western, nicey-nicey world, pause and let the holiness of God and his righteous wrath impact us. And understand that because God is love. Can you say love? He must hate sin. He must hate evil and all who do evil. As Driscoll puts it, evil is an assault on whom and what he loves. God is not indifferent to what happens to you. He's not indifferent to what happened to Bill. Or what you do. He deeply cares and it is central to the gospel. Bill's anger towards his father And his sin is appropriate as it brought harm to him and others. It was because of love that he was angry and hated what happened. And you see, God's God's wrath, his righteous wrath, works out in active and passive ways. So Ananias and Sapphira, that's an active way God's wrath works out. Judgment came to them there and their fear of God fell on everyone. But it's also passive. Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This gospel I'm preaching to you, I'm not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jump to verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to enlist a bunch of things. See, there's the active wrath of God where he brings judgment. And then there's the passive wrath of God where God says, okay, I will withdraw my help, my grace, and you can have the thing you've so pursued 
and chased after and hardened your heart towards me for. You can have that. And when we, we get what we want, not God, and we follow that road down, and that's the righteous wrath of God. We get what we ask for. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's m- many ways that's true, I think. So death, physical death came into the world when sin came in. Okay? So the wages of sin is death. The wage of sin is a spiritual death. <laughs> we die to God other than him waking us up. But there's also a way in that it pays you. So when you sin, gossip, slander, cheating, it pays you. You get a root of bitterness if you slander and gossip and unforgive. You get a root of bitterness and it cripples you. I mean, I don't know if you've seen a people who clearly, their complexion, there's just something life about them and then a root of bitterness gets hold. Year after year, you see them burdened, weighted, angry, almost shriveling up. And you think bitterness is just, you cheat on your tax returns or your papers or whatever, and you end up getting imprisoned in jail. That's the wage of your sin. So the, it, it works in a myriad of ways. When we choose something that's sin, there's a consequence to us. There's a wage to us. We, we're going to talk about the love and redemption of Jesus. Hallelujah. Last week we talked about his cleansing, but we must allow this to sit deeply in our hearts. And it's way more palatable, the righteous wrath of God, when we think of others who have done wrong to us. And it is super helpful because when you forgive, you're not just saying it's trite and doesn't matter. You're handing them over to a great, greater, more righteous judge than you could ever be. Hallelujah. But when we think about ourselves, you see, Bill got the example at the start. Sin is always first and foremost against God. And therefore, we need to think about this wrath towards us apart from Christ. Okay, Christ changes everything. Hallelujah. As you trust in him. You and I are just as guilty before God as Bill's father was. Everyone but the sinless Jesus deserves the act of righteous wrath of God. Hell is the place of God's unending act of wrath, reserved for the rebellious angels who have no chance of salvation, and for the demons and those who never repent before God. However, can you say however? That's a beautiful biblical word, isn't it? However, but, can you say buts? But God, yes, is a God of righteous wrath, but he's a God of scandalous love. Can you say scandalous love? God's wrath, brothers, sisters, friends, is diverted from people because of the love of God. It's made possible because on the cross Jesus substituted himself in our place for our sins and took God's wrath for us. There's so much to say on this. I've said the biblical word for it is propitiation. Now your Bible might not actually use the word propitiation, which I think is a shame. So the Bible tries to translate these Greek and Hebrew words, in ways that capture what for us they would mean. And so sometimes you'll read expiation or atonement in Romans 3, 23 to 25. When you really look at the root of the word, is there's both expiation, which was last week, God is our cleanser, and there's propitiation. God is our wrath bearer. Atonement often is used to cover both of those. Romans three twenty three: for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what sinning is, falling short of the holiness of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. We didn't even get hold of him. <laughs> we didn't you know, pick up the phone. We didn't cry out. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God put forward Jesus. 
to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. It's a beautiful thing. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. If you want to know what becoming a Christian is, it's that. It's turning from idols to serve the living God. Not just to say you my king, but to serve him and live him out. An idol is anything that's more important in your heart than God. It's not necessarily a carved image. It's what you give your allegiance to. It's what you give your devotion to. If it's taken away, you're devastated. If it's given to you, you're overjoyed. Disproportionately so. That's often what an idol is. You turn from those things to serve the living God and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. This is the Jesus who delivers us, hallelujah, from the wrath to come. It's wonderful news. (laughs) 1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, wrath, diverting, bearing sacrifice for our sins. God is a God of scandalous love. And if you're hearing this message today and you'll say, I'm not a Christian. I hope you're hearing that he's a God of scandalous love. And if you are believing point one, surely you're believing point two. And you have every reason to cry out to Jesus today. The reason I'm telling you is a friend of mine says that when you go on holiday, say you go on a holiday to a campsite in France, it's a beautiful campsite, kids can roam free, but there's a steep cliff at the end. And the person who introduces you says, you're free to go anywhere, but there's a steep cliff. What do you do as a parent with your children before you let them go running around? You almost take them to the cliff, you know? And you say, watch out, there's a steep cliff here. Don't go near there. Watch out, but enjoy everything out. Out of love, you tell them about that so that it doesn't catch them by surprise. And that's what I'm doing today. This is love that God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. He's a God of scandalous love, undeserved deliverance, scandalous substitution, the innocent bearing our guilt, absorbing the wrath that was to be ours, the righteous wrath of God hurtling towards us like a a meteor crashing. And Jesus comes in and says, I'll take it for those who call upon him. It's a beautiful mercy. Bill does not need to let his dad off the hook. When you forgive someone, you're not letting them off the hook as if it doesn't matter. Because his dad became a Christian, at the cross, justice and mercy kissed. Jesus substituted himself for Bill and for Bill's father. For you, for your perpetrator, to forgive, love and embrace them. Not in spite of sin, but because of sin. Christian, you can look to the cross and see the demands of sin done by you or done to you have been met. You do not need to think it is simply looked over. It has been dealt with. Guilt and shame have no place any longer for you. And those who trust in God too, alongside you. Even those who have wronged us. Justice as you received through the propitiation of Christ has been served. Amen. Hallelujah. So if you struggle to forgive, it's not, I I get it, it's not easy. And many of us, we, we choose to forgive and in faith we wrestle with it. I know the wrong done to me. Justice will be served. My nation, Zimbabwe, has been ravaged by an evil dictator. I'm not sure how to pray for him. 
I go to the Psalms, they give me a language. Imprecatory Psalms. I, 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 I call God for judgment and then I say, but, but maybe save him. I, I'm not sure. How, how do I pray? I pray against the evil and for it to stop. Do I pray for it? I, 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 I don't. One day I'm one or the other. I don't know what to do in my heart. But God will have his justice. And everyone that has been wronged, killed, hurt in that nation, you have your own story, justice will be met. And the wrath of God will be poured out. For some it will be on Jesus as they call upon him as I have. And I might see what they have done as way more evil than me, but I am deserving of that judgment apart from Jesus. Because he's God. He's not you. We're not comparing with each other. He is God. But this news must be accepted. John 3.36. And with this we come to an end. And I wonder if the band could come up please. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. There is no need for that today. That's why we do church. That's why we get. Yeah, that's why we preach the word. That's why we get out and go into our jobs and our hockey clubs and our neighbours and we invite friends so that they would know mercy and grace from Jesus. That's why we do what we do. Because time is short, brothers and sisters, for us to tell people about Jesus. But it's great news. Last week we had loads of people for Anne's baptism who didn't know Jesus, had all sorts of opinions about him, but we got to tell them about Jesus. And that's what we can do. Jesus does the saving. And people have to call out for him. Maybe you want to do that today. I wonder if we can just uh, get our communion cups ready. Just as we pause. Just want you to uh, take a moment to ask a few questions. Number one is, have you... Do you live with the wonder of what God has saved you from? Or is that something that has become familiar? That's okay. It's, It's good to know that that was done. And we now live in the good of God. But do you just look at people who seem to really love Jesus? And you think, what's going on? Sometimes understanding what God saved us from. Just that helps our hardened hearts to get softer. Maybe you think, well, if this is Christianity, righteous wrath, I don't want anything to do with it. I just, I want to commend to you the Bible. If you're not sure about what I've said, read the Bible. Come and ask questions and wrestle with us. Maybe you're just overwhelmed afresh and you think, oh, Lord, stunning. Now I know what David means. I know what the word means when it says, it's like honey. I can taste and see that the Lord is good. And maybe you need to forgive today. The Bible says the devil uses unforgiveness to deceive us. And the wage of that is a bitterness that grips our hearts. So just now, decide now. Release some people from you being the judge. Give them over to the Lord. Forgive them. Give them over to the Lord. As we break this wafer, Scripture calls us. This is if you're a Christian, join in. If you're not, please uh, hold off from joining in. This is a way as Christians we remember Jesus. But if you want to trust in Christ today, it's the Messiah, the prophesied one, 
who came and fulfilled the law perfectly, fulfilled every promise spoken hundreds of years before. Son of God, fully God, fully man, stunning. You can today call on Jesus. Lord, we, we break this wafer and we remember your body, the physical torment that you went through. It's just a, a little reflection of the wrath you bore. Given by God, Jesus embraced the cross. Whoa, how did he do that? It wasn't easy. In the garden, he's saying, God, if there's another way, he's weeping, blood, sweating, it's overwhelming, and yet he still chose to do it so that you and I can be here today. So Joel and Graham, David and Irene, we can stand and say, Jesus is my saviour. We remember you, Jesus, and we honour you. Sing your own way, honour Christ now. Call on Jesus. And for some of us, we just need to say, Lord, as we take this, Lord, we remember you. Help us. Help me forgive. Help me trust. As we come to the wine, the blood of Christ. So many sacrifices in the Old Testament, aren't there? It's because atonement for sin needed a blameless, perfect, without spot sacrifice of bloodshed because life is in the blood. Jesus was that for us. The blood of Christ cleanses us. The blood of Christ showed an example of how to endure for us. The blood of Christ propitiates the wrath of God for us. Thank you. Jesus. It's just as you do this just thank God, thank Christ for taking all your sin all the righteous wrath of God and that you now receive scandalous love. Let's stand together. Feel free to sit if you want to. Let's just uh, close our eyes for a moment. Just welcome the Holy Spirit to come and help us. If you want prayer for something, please uh, grab someone you know where you are near you to pray with you or come and find myself or one of the leaders that you know of in the church. Holy Spirit, we invite you come and bring revelation. These are not truths that our limited minds want to comprehend. We pray for revelation. Invite the Lord. Don't let me do do this for you. You might just say, this doesn't even seem to impact me. Help me. Help me freshly know you, Jesus. Just start thanking him if you live in the good of it. You just thank you, Jesus. If you want to call yourself a Christian, hey, if he's not real, there's no harm in asking this question. If he is, there might be everything to say, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. Right now, I believe some of you know you need to ask that question, even though you're not sure. Jesus will show himself to you. He will meet you in a dream. He will open the eyes of your heart in this moment, and you'll know greater liberty. You'll know that he is the one that has fulfilled all law. Maybe you're here because you're seeking Jesus, seeking God. Think He will make Himself known to you. And I ask you to do that, Jesus. To everyone who has walked with you for years, to those who have just met you, and this is all a bit overwhelming, confusing, and those who never have met you, make yourself known to us. 
great Jesus. We love you, Lord. I want to just do that. I want to express some affection to Jesus as much as you are able. Say it out loud. We, we love you, Lord. We cherish you. Just begin to think on the cross. Thank him. I'm not going to let the band lead us too quickly. Let's do some work ourselves. Yeah? Let's honor Jesus. We magnify you, Lord. Thank you that you stepped into my place. Thank you, counted me, Lord, as one you would do it for. Thank you that you've sent people to speak to me of you. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks truth. Thank you, Lord. There is a way to forgive. Thank you. I need not be consumed by bitterness and unforgiveness forever. Thank you. Greater, greater, greater are you, Lord. Greater are you, Lord Jesus. Think of all those who have wronged me. Thank you, Lord. Lord, just as I have, there might meet mercy, but justice will be served. We magnify only you can complete the picture. You're not exaggerated one way or the other. We love you, Lord, cherish you. And as we sing now, Jesus, would you be honored? We delight ourselves in you. In Jesus' name.